everyone. Welcome to Omni Shambles, the Daily Beast podcast where we try to make sense of the Trump era and do what we can to point you in the right direction as the week begins. I'm your host, Jackie Kucinich, and this week we're joined by Will Sommer, who's our tech reporter, but that doesn't really do him justice. He also reports on all weird things in and about the internet. And Aswin Supsang, our White House reporter, who's not Lachlan Marquet. You keep forgetting to book Lachlan for some reason. You keep accidentally calling me to come, so I make it. I mean, it wasn't an accident this time because, you know, Lachlan was busy. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, this week... my second favorite boss. (laughs) (laughs) So this week, Washington is preparing for one of its more somber rituals, and that's saying goodbye to a U.S. president. We found out on Saturday that President George H.W. Bush passed away. He'll lie in state in the Capitol on Monday, and then on Wednesday, there will be a funeral for him at the National Cathedral. Something else that's going to be happening at the National Cathedral, which we haven't really seen in the last couple of years, is uh, President Trump will be attending a state funeral, which usually the president attending the funeral of another president or of a high ranking public official isn't really news. It's sort of what we've gotten used to in Washington for, I don't know, the last 200 years. But this president is different. Swin, why don't you talk a little bit about this? Well, in any other presidential era, the leader of the free world attending funeral services of a high-profile political figure or a past president would be somewhere in the ballpark of presidential dog bites presidential men. But in the Trump era, one of the weirder hallmarks of the current term is that President Trump attending or even being invited to one of these funerals is weird. He wasn't allowed at Barbara Bush's funeral. He was effectively banned from John McCain's funeral a few months ago. So the fact that President Trump will be there this Wednesday at George H.W. Bush's funeral is actually news in itself. And if he manages to get through it without live tweeting details about Iran-Contra, then that's even bigger news with this president. But it also has to do with the Bush family itself, right? Let's play what he said about Thousand Points of Light, which, of course, has to do with volunteerism. And it was referenced frequently by President H.W. Bush. This is from July. And by the way, you know, all the rhetoric you see here, the Thousand Points of Light. What the hell was that, by the way? Thousand Points of Light. What did that mean? Does anyone know? I know one thing. Make America great again, we understand. And that had sort of come out of absolutely nowhere during that speech. He sort of threw it in there. The other reference point, I think, for President H.W. Bush and President Trump was Lee Atwater actually suggested Trump as a running mate for (laughs) President Bush in 1988, in which Bush called strange and unbelievable, according to John Meacham's book. I mean, it would have been incredibly strange because at the time, Donald Trump was way more not just liberal, but left wing (laughs) than he is now. So he certainly would have made a weird running mate for a social con warrior like George H.W. Bush or a drug warrior like George H.W. Bush. This was at the time when Donald Trump wanted to end the drug war and legalize as many drugs as possible to kill the business of drug cartels. But I digress. Flash forward to the 2016 presidential campaign and after Donald Trump has, of course, become something, at least until now, of a persona non grata. When it comes to the Bush family. Well, actually, he was asked about this during a press conference with Angela Merkel at the G20. Let's play that. We extended our best wishes and uh, it was he was a very fine man. I met him on numerous occasions. He was just a high quality man who truly loved his family. One thing that came through loud and clear is very proud of his family and uh, very much loved his family. So he's a terrific guy and he'll be missed. And he led a full life 
and a very exemplary life, too, I will say. And we've decided, as you know, we're going to have a big press conference today, which I actually look forward to because we've made tremendous progress at the G20 with many nations. And we we're going to have a very big press conference. And out of respect for President Bush, we've canceled it here and we'll have it back in Washington at some time in the near future, sometime after the funeral services. Okay. Do you regret any of your comments about Bush or family in the past? Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Moving right along. <laughs> Comically creates a Trump-shaped hole in the wall as right. he gets out of there. It also has to do with the Bush family. He was very critical of President W. Bush. Certainly Jeb Bush as well. And Jeb Bush as well, of course. Good old famous low energy Jeb. And as you point out with the thousand points of light Jeb, which was a really weird Jeb because I think everybody who knows that term, which is a lot of people, knows what it's about. It's not hard to figure out the meaning of it. He will be present at this funeral. But it doesn't just have to do with these officials. The president doesn't really do that well with death, right, Will? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, even with people he hasn't had very public feuds with and families. For example, he went to Roy Cohn's, his mentor's funeral, apparently was very weird, feuding and kind of glowering in the back. Additionally, at his father's funeral, Donald Trump, you know, in the same way that he kind of relates so many things about people just to himself. And it's like, you know, my dad was a great guy and he'd be so proud of me. And then he listed off all of his own business accomplishments as proof of how great his dad was because he was doing so well. The president has talked about in the past after his mother's death in a rare sort of moment of introspection. He talked about having some difficulty with grief. He has this very strange relationship to funerals and seems to struggle, as he does with other things, with sort of like the gravity of the moment. And it's not just famous people or high profile Republicans when they finally expire, when the president has finally not expired. <laughs> Someone else here has been on the death watch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, just did really uh, beautiful words with grief. <laughs> I try. It's not just them where the president has completely failed to rise to the occasion. I mean, this happened in so many other instances in these two short years, including with I believe it was Army Sergeant Le David Johnson. Please forgive me if I'm butchering the name, the title. But he was one of the people who died during the U.S. operation in Niger when the president, of course, called his widow ostensibly to comfort her. And then it degenerated into Trump accidentally making this poor woman cry during the phone call in her car because he said, and I'm only mildly paraphrasing here, Oh, like, yeah, this is sad, sure, but your husband knew what he was signing up for, so what are you going to do? And then there was legendary soul singer Aretha Franklin, who died earlier this year, who, when asked about her death by reporters at the White House, President Trump used that as an opportunity to say, oh, yeah, we were buddy-buddy back in the day, and she worked for me before, which was one of the weirder things he said about a celebrity's death. People didn't really know what he meant at first. I think people figured out that he was probably referring to that she performed at one of his properties or resorts or something once, I think, for an event back in the day. And it was another weird occasion of Trump using someone's death to talk about how cool and well-connected and in the know and successful he and his business empire were. And as we reported that week at the time of Aretha Franklin's death at thedailybeast.com. Aretha Franklin, particularly after Trump's presidential rise and during his campaign, was absolutely no fan of her supposed former friend, Donald J. Trump. She would say horrible swear word encrusted things about him. And when people associated with Donald Trump reached out to her to try to get her to perform his 2017 inauguration, she and the people around her 
very quickly and aggressively said, no, no way in hell. Why is he like this, Will? I mean, what have, what have you heard? I mean, I don't want to psycho. I don't want to psychoanalyze the president because that's not why we're here and it'd be a much longer conversation. And none of us are qualified to do that anyway. Do you have any insight into what it's rooted in? I think we've seen throughout that the president is certainly not a very introspective person. You know, again, I think we'd have to go back to these remarks he made about having some difficulties with grief after his mother's death. I doubt really anyone could really get to the bottom of it. But it's something that comes up again and again. Swin, his associates have talked to you about how he processes this. Oh, yeah. I don't think this gets necessarily into the nitty gritty of the psychoanalytic aspects of it. But numerous of those close to or have been close to President Trump have told me that, okay, look, the reasons so many of these news stories go way negative and very south for him when he has to deal with grieving people and grieving families of people who have just passed away is because if you don't know Donald Trump personally well enough and are not familiar with the way he talks, a lot of the things that he says when he's trying to be comforting can sound incredibly and sound perhaps even intentionally very callous, even though he's trying to give some form of comfort to these people. And it's even worse when he doesn't know these people. There was a story that was featured in the Associated Press pretty recently, several months ago. It was in the aftermath of one of the fairly recent mass shootings. And Trump was next to this woman who was affected by this. And she was talking about how keeping our communities and keeping our schools safe. The president immediately pivoted to, oh, so you're talking about arming teachers. This poor woman was like, no, what are you talking about? I'm talking about this. I'm talking about that. No, I'm not for arming school teachers. Oh, no, no, no. But you were talking about arming school teachers, right? And he just kept saying this thing over and over and over again, like a doll with one of those pull string devices. And this woman told the AP that's like talking to a small child. I couldn't believe I was talking to the president of the United States in this situation. So this is one of many examples where when people who have been afflicted by these horrible losses talk about when they encounter President Donald J. Trump, it just feels like an empty vessel to them. And it shows how he catastrophically fails at one of the most important but also most superficial aspects of the job of the presidency, which is to comfort people in grief. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. On the lighter note, indictments in the Mueller probe. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) But Will has a fantastic story on thedailybeast.com having to do with Jerome Corsi, who I'll let you talk a little bit more about him. But the reason he's involved in the Mueller probe, of course, is because of his connections to Roger Stone. And actually, we should play that sound before Will talks. This is uh, Stone talking on this week. Let's go back to those emails because I think they're mischaracterized and they need some context. The same day I got an email that was forwarded to me uh, from James Rosen of Fox News saying that he'd had a tip that the WikiLeaks disclosures pertained to the Clinton Foundation. Uh, Yes, I contacted uh, Jerry Corsi because at some point Ted Malik, who I'd met once, had dropped Assange's name. Uh, And like every Politico in America, like every political reporter, I was interested in knowing what exactly they had. Uh, But uh, there was no response to that. Roger Stone, political reporter. But uh, go ahead, Will. Tell us a little bit about Jerome Corsi, how he plays into this. Sure, absolutely. So Jerome Corsi is this prominent right-wing conspiracy theorist who's had his hand in a lot of the biggest conspiracy theories of the past 10 to 15 years. You know, he was a key figure in the swift boating attack on John Kerry. He was a big birther claiming Barack Obama was born in Kenya. And more recently, he's been saying, you know, the deep state is out to get Trump. The reason he's in Robert Mueller's crosshair is that he is a potential connection between Roger Stone and thus Trump world and Julian Assange with the idea that he was sort of the connection between the two of them during the Trump campaign. 
there's a question over whether Jerome Corsi lied about it. He's constantly kind of changing his story. Now Mueller is considering prosecuting him for making false statements. Jerome Corsi was kind of set to do a plea deal, but he's a wild card, right? And so he's like <laughs> released the draft charges against him. And now he's like written this whole book about his experience with the grand jury and everything. He's really kind of thrown a wrench into everything. You've been going through the book today. How is it? It's a fascinating read. I will tell you more comments than you would expect on whether he thinks a woman is wearing too revealing clothes. He's sort of shocked. And he also brings up all the time how much he tips. There's like five figures. He like gives someone a 20 and they're like, are the revealing clothes or uh, no, 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 he, he's always like, want to be clear. He's like, I tip so well at Morton's. It comes up like repeatedly and people are like, oh, Mr. Corsi, thank you so much. And it's like, that's Dr. Corsi to you. Podcast listeners can't see the look I'm giving Will Summer right now. <laughs> But Corsi is a fan of Morton's Steakhouse. Oh, he's obsessed with it. He, at one point, he's staying at the Mayflower and Morton's Steakhouse is, is, a DC hotel. is like a block and a half away and it's raining. And he makes a big deal about like he's such a big spender that he takes a cab there. So anyways, but to get back on track, you know, the interesting parts about the <laughs> it's book. It's literally across the street, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the interesting parts about the book in terms of the Mueller investigation, because Corsi is in this position where there are these emails proving essentially that he lied about what he told Mueller and the FBI during this interview. And so he's kind of like changing his story a lot. And he's saying stuff. It's almost like memento where he's saying, uh, you know, I thought about it more. And I guess someone did tell me about Julian Assange in these emails. Can't remember who it was, though. He's a constantly shifting story. Now, he filed some complaint today about Mueller and his behavior, but like it's not a real process. It's basically like a rude letter he sent. And so, you know, Jerome Corsi is in pretty dire straits here. Has he tried to citizens arrest Robert Mueller yet? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's effectively what it is. He was billing it as a criminal complaint. Jerome Corsi does not have prosecutorial powers, to the best of my knowledge. But yeah, I mean, you know, the story kind of explores his past as a children's book author. Children's book author, great story about King, his friends with a dragon. Someone on Twitter pointed out, you know, what a surprise, you know, story about two men teaming up to take out a woman. Because, of course, in this story, <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, the dragon and the king take out a witch. Oh, Twitter. And so it's very interesting career, but also consistently kind of a returning to re being a Republican operative and stuff like that. It's sort of cliche at this point to talk about how the Trump era is a Coen Brothers movie. So much of it, particularly the Trump-Russia scandals, resemble the Coen Brothers movie Burn After Reading, which had right. like Brad Pitt and George Clooney and Frances McDormand in it. Great movie. Everybody should check it out if they want to understand the Trump era. But Jerome Corsi finding himself at the center in all of this Trump-Russia brouhaha and the Mueller investigation is kind of the biggest indication right now that we're actually living through a Coen Brothers movie. Anybody like myself who remembers Jerome Corsi from the Obama era and all of his far-right hollerings and rantings and conspiratorial racist birther-mongering against President Barack Obama. It's kind of shocking to me that he's in the news in such this big way. But he used to talk to Trump, right? I think that's something that's sort of getting lost in this because Trump, of course, built his political rise starting during Obama's first term on the backs of birtherism. So that's something he and Jerome Corsi, who Trump used to affectionately call Jerry on the record, we're on the same page on this stuff about Obama. Trump, of course, was obsessed with Barack Obama's birth certificate for years. So that's how they first connected during the Obama years. And they would talk not completely infrequently. You could credibly and pretty accurately describe Jerome Corsi as having been a Trump associate in some ways. Like Trump confirmed, as did his former fixer, Michael Cohen, several times on the record mm -hmm during the mid-Obama years that, yes, of course, Donald J. Trump and Jerome Corsi talk. Like, of course they do. And it's funny because when I was talking to Trump's lawyer, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani last week, I asked him about this and Giuliani told me 
yes, I've recently spoken to President Trump about this. He told me he used to speak to Jerome Corsi. They used to talk, but he doesn't remember the last time they spoke. And then literally hours later that same day, Trump was out there publicly telling a news outlet, oh, this Jerome Corsi. I don't know Jerome Corsi. There's kind of this fascinating scene in the book in which Corsi gets out of this interview where apparently he perjured himself or something like that. And then he instantly tells his lawyer, you need to call Trump's lawyers and say Trump cannot sit for an in-person interview because they will shred him. Because Corsi says, if my memory is bad and like they can trick me, like they can definitely trick Trump. He's trying to protect him. Yeah, exactly. And good old Jerry does have a joint defense agreement with President Trump, which is what does that mean? Well, it means that Jerome Corsi and his lawyers and Trump and his lawyers and his outside counsel do have a joint agreements in terms of sharing information with each other because they do have interests in these ongoing legal woes and the Mueller investigation. These sorts of JDAs are not an uncommon thing. President Trump does currently have them with other people. But the fact that one of America's most leading birthers and conspiracy theorists has a JDA with the leader of the free world is in itself a fascinating aspect of the Trump era. Well, you know who doesn't have a JDA with the president? Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, who last week pled guilty to lying to Congress and now Mm -hmm. is working with the Mueller investigation. And President Trump was up and tweeting about it today. He says, Michael Cohen asked judge for no prison time. He can do all of those terrible, all caps, related to Trump, things that have to do with fraud, big loans, taxis, etc., and not have to do prison time. He makes up stories to a great and already reduced deal for himself to get his wife and father-in-law, who has all the money, question mark, off scot-free, capital S, capital F. He lied for this outcome and should, in my opinion, serve a full and complete sentence. So, Swin, here's the question. Michael Cohen lied to Congress. Is the White House or people around the White House, are they concerned that anyone else is going to get caught up in this in the coming days, weeks, months? Well, people in Trump world at the senior ranks would be lying to you if they told you that off the record, they don't have some degree of concern that Donald Trump Jr. could somehow get wrapped up in this stuff because people who don't like the president certainly are trying to figure out, is there any part in this, including testimony on Capitol Hill, that he could have lied or potentially lied? under oath, which would amount to a similar offense to what you were talking about earlier. Having said that, their degrees of concern are not five alarm or whatever yet, simply because Don Jr. and guys like Jared Kushner are, of course, a part of this special cutout, which is you are part of Trump's family. You're a member of the Trump clan. So if anything, even a whiff of what is happening to Michael Cohen right now were to happen to Don Jr. or Jared Kushner, the entire force of Trump world, if not the presidency, would go into full-on attack and protect them at all cost modes in a way that they never have for Michael Cohen, who has quickly become the least loved snitch in all of Trump land. And with that, we are out of time. Will Swin, thank you so much for joining us. Subscribe to Omni Shambles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever fine podcasts are found. And also, of course, at thedailybeast.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.